At this time, we'd like to invite the children who are heading back to Children's Church, so feel free to head back. Miss Maggie will be your teacher today, so feel free to head back and join her at the back door. And as the kids head back, we we'll invite you to turn to uh, the rest of us who are staying here to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As we go on in our sermon series on 1 Corinthians, very often what we do is we preach, so we just go through the books of the Bible. And as God presents his word to us, we go through it and try and understand what it is saying to us here and today. So turn to, feel free to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, after the book of Romans, before 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll cover verses 1 through 11 this morning. As you turn there, I'll just make another plug for that worship workshop next week. As Chris and I were talking about what we would do with that, that idea came because we just wanted to help our kids and parents specifically engage in the worship service. So if you are a parent with young kids, you are the primary target and demographic for that worship workshop. We invite you to bring your kids along to it. We'll have child care for the younger ages, but bring your kids who participate in worship. And we're going to have a good time of talking and um, dialogue and back and forth and interaction around what is worship. And we hope to teach you some things, for you to teach us some things as we together shape what should our worship look like here at CBC. So I invite you to that once again. And these chapters in 1 Corinthians all have to do with what is worship and what should worship look like. I'll read 1 through 11 from 1 Corinthians 12. Feel free to stand with me if you like, or you can remain seated. But if you like, stand if you want to stretch your legs, and in honor of the holiness of God's word, stand together. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father and God, we do pray that you would speak to us now as you do through your word. We believe that your word is your speech, that the Bible is your speech to us, and that you have a reason for speaking. And when you speak, we want to listen, but we need your help to do so. So we pray that you would help us now and give us grace to hear and respond in praise, and to apply what is being spoken to us this morning in your word. We thank you for the gift of it. And we praise your name. If you could have any one superpower, what would it be? It's a fun game. Have you ever played that game before? If I had one ability, what would it be? I think probably the most common answer is the superpower of flight. People want that one. If you're more of an introvert, maybe you'd say invisibility. I want to be invisible. I always thought shape-shifting would be fun. I think you're into a lot of trouble with that. One of my favorite cartoons growing up was the X-Men, the old animated cartoon from the early 90s. Not only did it have the best theme song, uh, that cartoon, but there's part of the wonder of it was seeing different superheroed people with superhero abilities and uh, the creativity in that. And there's kind of a, a fantasy element as you thought through, what kind of ability would I want? And what, wouldn't it be cool to have such powers? Well, next few chapters of 1 Corinthians, we're going to be talking about supernatural abilities. How God gives supernatural abilities to Christians. We call them spiritual gifts or gifts of the Spirit. 
Spiritual gifts is a term used to describe any God-given ability that is empowered by God and used for the building up or the health of the church. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's an ability given by God and his spirit for the purpose of building up the church. Here in 1 Corinthians 12, the word that's used to talk about spiritual gifts at first is the word pneumatikos, which is basically just means spiritual things. So Paul, as he addresses this subject, turning to spiritual things, says, I don't want you to be uninformed about these spiritual things. Later in the section, he'll use the word, you may have heard this word before, charisma. It's a word for spiritual gifts, or more literally, a grace gift. A gift of grace is a charisma, or charismata. It's where we get that term charismatic. Uh, charisma is a gift of God's grace. And in the New Testament, that word not only applies specifically to spiritual gifts, as we're talking about today, it also is used to describe kind of any gift that comes from God. So sometimes salvation itself is called a charisma, or God's word of the gospel, or Jesus is referred to as a charisma, a gift of grace, anything that is given by God by his grace. It's a broad word. And here in this context, it's talking about spiritual gifts, Specifically, or, as Paul says, spiritual things. Why is Paul writing about these spiritual things? He says he wants the Corinthians to be informed about this, not to be ignorant about these things. In Corinth, Paul's writing to the Christians in the city of Corinth, and in Corinth, in that church there, there were a lot of gifted people who had some pretty incredible spiritual gifts. But they were using them wrongly, and they became, many of them, arrogant in their spiritual gifts, uh, proud of the gifts that they had, and particularly a couple gifts like tongues seemed to be really important to them, and we'll talk about what that is. And they were being used in such a way that caused pride or arrogance or division in the church, over who had what gift and how are they used, and then there was separation, some people got special treatment. So Paul wants to correct all of them in their use of gifts, and there's some things they need to know. So that's what we're going to learn this morning. What do we need to know about spiritual gifts? That's the main question that's going to drive this whole sermon, this simple question. What do we need to know about spiritual gifts? And there are three answers to that question. What do we need to know about spiritual gifts? What are the answers that Paul gives that we need to hear just as the Christians in Corinth did. What do we need to know about spiritual gifts? First, and most importantly, and there's a reason Paul starts here, this is the most important thing about spiritual gifts. First, you need to know that they do not define spiritual status. That's the point of verses 1 through 3. That these gifts and their abilities and God-given abilities, they do not define spiritual status for those in Corinth. This isn't what makes you a better or more spiritual Christian. They do not define spiritual status. Why? Because something else does. That is far more important than the gifts you have. Let's unpack that. Verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, and when he says brothers, he means brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Paul is writing to clarify about spiritual gifts, because apparently there was some confusion. And there was confusion because these Corinthians, they came from non-Christian backgrounds. He he refers to them as pagans. When you were pagans, when you were uh, Gentiles, when you were not of this faith, in your previous life, you had other ways of worshiping. And he's saying to the Corinthians, you may have brought some of those other ways of worshiping into your Christian practice, so we need to clarify what it means to worship in a Christian way. It says when you're pagans, you had this pagan worship, and you bowed down to, you worshiped mute idols, which literally reads dumb idols. I think it's interesting, he says, you were led to mute idols, not by mute idols. Why? Because the idols couldn't do any leading themselves. 
They themselves were lifeless, dumb. They can't speak. They can't do anything. So however you were led, you were led to these things, not by them because they don't have any power in themselves, but you were led to them. And it is foolishness that you worship and bow down to these dumb things, these statues, these man-made objects, lifeless gods. You may have a statue of Apollo or Artemis or Asclepius or Dionysus and you bow down to that and worship it in its temple, but they are dumb things. Jeremiah 10.5 says of idols, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. These idols that were the center of their pagan worship were nothing. When I was younger, I used to watch a comedy sketch show by the name of In Living Color. That's where Jim Carrey got his start. Um, I'm not recommending this. But there was one sketch in In Living Color that I remember watching as a kid where uh, Jamie Foxx was the character, and he was playing an old man who was walking around a dog, except the dog was dead. It was a dumb sketch. But he had this stuffed, lifeless dog walking around just limp everywhere because it was dead, and he thought it was alive and acted like it was alive. So he would go around saying to people, pet my dog, pet my dog, and he put it in people's faces, and he took it to dog shows and put it in canine dog cop school. And it was a dumb sketch, but hilarious as he thought this dead dog was alive and carried it around. As I explain it, not very funny. When I was a kid watching it, hilarious. <laughs> but he was deceived thinking that this dead thing was alive. And Paul would say, so were were you when you worshipped all these dead, lifeless idols. They cannot speak, they cannot do anything. However, in their pagan worship and spiritual practices, they may have had some truly profound spiritual experiences. Not because of the dead idols, but because they were dabbling in spiritual things. And Paul says, I do not want you to bring that into your current worship. The idols may be dead, demons and spirits are real. And whatever spirituality you previously experienced, it was not consistent with Christian spirituality. There is a definitive difference between what you experienced in your pagan worship and what is supposed to define your Christian worship. There is a definitive line that separates the two. And what is that line? It is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That confession, that knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord is what defines Christian spirituality. That is what it means to be in the spirit, to be a spiritual person in the Christian faith. It is to confess that Jesus is Lord, not to confess that Jesus is accursed or to rebel against him, to reject him. That is not of the spirit. What is of the Spirit, and what makes a person a spiritual person in Christianity, according to our Christian faith, is the confession that Jesus is Lord. And this is not just something you say with your lips. Keep your finger where you're at in 1 Corinthians. You can turn back to Matthew, the first gospel. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, listen to what Jesus says, what he teaches. We've talked about these verses before. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does this teach us? It teaches us that it is possible to say with your lips, 
Jesus is Lord. And it is possible to have many seemingly spiritual experiences, even charismatic experiences, demons exercised, gifts used, incredible things happen. And for all of that to take place and to not know who Jesus is and to not actually know him and love him and worship him as Lord. And the point is, spiritual experiences themselves or just saying Jesus is Lord, those things don't mark out true Christian spirituality. You can have all sorts of phenomenal experiences. That doesn't mean it is of Christ. What makes somebody truly spiritual in the Christian sense is the confession, not just with your lips, but in your heart, with your whole way of life, Jesus is Lord, to be submitted to him. And that is crucial for the Corinthians to know that that is what makes the difference between a spiritual person and a non-spiritual person because they had brought other tests of spirituality into the mix. Here's what a truly spiritual person is, if you can speak in tongues. That's what makes somebody truly spiritual. Or if you can prophesy. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, some people prophesy, they weren't of me. But they had their own values. Here are the higher gifts, here are the more important things, and because of that, they brought divisions into the church. And Christian groups have done this throughout history. So there have been Christian groups that say, if you can speak in tongues, you're a higher class of Christian. And someone on the more charismatic end of things might say, we are truly gifted people, and they might look down on those who are more stoic or reserved or more intellectually oriented in their Christianity, or those who are on the academic side might look at those who don't have the same learning they do and say, this is what true spirituality looks like. Those who know their systematic theology and those who know their doctrine of scripture. Or we might have other things that define us. Well, those people who truly go out and get in the community and serve, those are the true spiritually Christians, and those who don't serve the poor like I do, they're not the real Christians. And we do all these things, and we define what true Christianity looks like, and it always happens to kind of line up with our own personal preferences and say, this is what spirituality is. And Paul wants to get rid of all of that kind of superiority in the church and say, this is what makes a person spiritual. Is Jesus Lord for you? That's the line. Setting them all on the same plane. This is what makes... A Christian spiritual. This is what it means to be in the spirit. Christ is Lord of your life. And that is a true spiritual miracle for a sinful person, as narcissistic as we all are and as self-centered as we all are, to give up our lives, to submit our lives to Jesus and say, you're Lord. That's enough of a spiritual miracle to call anybody spiritual and in the spirit who can do that. That's what defines spiritual status, not any gift given or used. It's the first thing we need to know about spiritual gifts. They do not define spiritual status. Second, they're given variously to every believer. In other words, every Christian has a gift or gifts. And they're given differently and variously to every believer. They are given variously to every believer. Skip down to verse 7, where Paul says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. Scripture makes it very clear here. Paul makes it very clear. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. 
Every gift is from the Spirit, and every gift is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And all believers receive a gift. It's like the movie Encanto. If you've seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. Every member of the family gets a gift. And every gift is important, even Bruno's, maybe especially Bruno's. Everybody is given a gift as part of the family of Madrigal in that movie. And in that movie, every gift is given to serve the family and the community. Right? All my parents are with me. The gift is for the common good that each one is given. Literally, it says each gift is given for the benefit or for the advantage. And actually, it doesn't really say advantage of whom. The benefit of whom? Is each gift given for the benefit of yourself or for the church? Well, it doesn't say, but context would tell us it's for the benefit of the church. It's for the church's good. But I don't think that means the gifts aren't also given for personal benefit as well. The gifts are given for the benefit of the community first, but also for us. We benefit by them. So, for example, if you have the teaching gift, your gift is given to benefit the church, but you first benefit by your learning. It's like a chef who makes food for people. You make food for others, but you benefit first by getting to taste your own food. And there's personal benefit in that. But if you made all that food and only gave it to yourself, that would be wrong. As a chef, your whole purpose is to taste it and then give it away. And that's how spiritual gifts are to work. Each believer has one and is obligated to use that gift for the common good. They benefit from it first, but then they give it and use it for the church. That's why I say that every Christian is a minister. I don't like using or reserving that term only for elders or pastors. There's an office of elder or pastor that's specific, but every Christian is a minister because every Christian has a ministry and a way to serve. Old or young, man or woman, rich or poor, whatever your background, if you are in Christ, you have been given a gift, a service, a ministry by the Spirit, and nobody is left out from that. Each one is given a gift, which means that each one of us is a minister and has a ministry. This is why we want you engaged with the church. It's not just because we like fuller rooms on Sunday morning. It's not just because I like seeing your face, though I do. We want you, everyone, engaged because God has given you something for our good, and when you withhold yourself from the church, you deprive the church of the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit has given you something to contribute to the whole church. So we want you engaged. I'm going to say that selfishly. I want you engaged in the community. And specifically the community of the church because I'll benefit by your ministry. You may have heard the joke that 10% of the people do 90% of the work in the church. That a few do a lot and the rest sit around. And to whatever extent that joke is true, it's a condemnation on the church. It means that 10% of the people are operating way outside their gifting, and the other 90 aren't operating at all. I don't think it's true of this church. This is where I would commend us. I think, by and large, we are a church that serves and ministers well, and I see your gifts in use often, so I don't want this to be condemning, but I do want it to be a warning. And all of us are given something to contribute. I know this with my own kids. Maggie and I talk about this often. When they're bored, they get cranky. And Christians are the same way. When we're bored and not given stuff to do, we kind of start getting cranky and restless. We all ought to be given something to do, whether it be a fun game or a chore. Both of those tend to fix attitudes. But the point is, give something to do. And we don't want to deprive one another because no one has all the gifts. 
We each need each other if we're to be complete. There's an old comedian by the name of Stephen Wright, and his whole shtick was he'd give deadpan jokes in a monotone voice, and he'd deliver you know, one-liners like this. And one of my favorite of his said, One Christmas, my grandmother gave me a box of Band-Aids, gave my brother a box of broken glass, and said, Now you two share. <laughs> they each were given gifts that complemented the other. And so we are given gifts that complement one another. So you might ask, okay, what are those gifts? And now we get to the list that Paul provides in verses 8 through 10. This is just one of several lists in the New Testament. A list of gifts. And it's important to note that no list in the New Testament is the same. There's some overlap, but none of them are the same. Which means that these gifts aren't all the gifts that there are. In this list, or I think in any list. Then when Paul lists out these kind of gifts in the church... His goal is not to give you a formal system of here are all the possible gifts. I don't even think his goal is to tightly define what all the gifts are. He's just giving examples. So this is an illustrative list. Uh, Some things that pop off the top of his head. Here are some gifts that are used in the church. So you may not look at this list and see your gift on there, and that's fine. It might be elsewhere in Scripture, or I would say not even in Scripture at all. Because I think these lists are just illustrative. They're examples, but they're not exhaustive what all the spiritual gifts may be. It's just a sampling of some gifts. And note that all of them are listed in the same way. We tend to want to categorize these things into charismatic gifts or non-charismatic gifts or supernatural gifts or non-supernatural gifts, but Paul doesn't really do that, at least here. He just kind of lists them all together with a lot of overlap. So as I go through this, I'll try and define something about these gifts, but no, in some places there's debate and others there's lack of clarity. So, so for example, we'll dive into utterances of wisdom and utterances of knowledge. What are they? And all the commentators say, we're not totally sure. And Paul's goal is probably not to define very tightly between wisdom and knowledge. These things overlap, but they seem to be words that teach and edify. Words that build up. So some people are given the gift, the ability to teach in a way that builds up. And they can give words of wisdom. We generally tend to think of wisdom as kind of a life application. They say something that's wise, that helps you live life. And we tend to think of knowledge as like doctrine and truth and data. So somebody with the gift of knowledge might be able to give you truth that helps. This one with the gift of utterances of wisdom might be able to say wise words, but I, don't, I think there's some overlap between those things. But the point is, they speak in a way that builds up. Some Christians have the gift of faith. And you might say, don't all Christians have faith? Yes. All Christians are saved by faith, so all of us have faith. But you've probably met people who you say, they really have faith. Like, I doubt sometimes. I have seasons of doubt where I'm feeling down. But whenever I talk to their person, they just believe God is going to come through. They have that gift that just, they seem to have unwavering faith and trust in the Lord. I think that's what that is. Older commentators would associate this gift actually with miracles and say, this is the kind of faith that moves mountains. They have faith that God is going to work miraculously. And whenever they put that faith, it just seems to happen. But it's those people who have extraordinary faith, and those people are a gift to us who are more doubtful, who are cynical, those people who just always trust the Lord is going to come through and intervene. They are gifts. They're gifts of healing and working of miracles. Both of these gifts seem to refer to powerful miracles that were done in the church, sometimes in helping people to be healed of ailments, Sometimes just in simply demonstrating miraculous power. Most, again, older commentators seem to associate these things often with exercising of demons. Note that they're both plural. I think it's implied that they're different kinds of healings and different kinds of working of miracles. Meaning, I think some people were probably given the gift to pray and heal and people got healed of sicknesses and others 
at a different time prayed for healing and more miraculous healings happened. But it wasn't that one person was a one-stop shop for all kinds of healing. They wouldn't be able to just go through a hospital and just praying and everybody healed one after the other. It was, happened maybe even sporadically. I get safe to assume that Paul didn't think one person would have this gift of all kinds of healing or all kinds of miracles, but there are subcategories and differentiations. And that God in his providence would give the ability to heal and do miraculous things. Some of these miraculous things may have even been acts of judgment, demonstrations of God's power. We think back to Peter and Ananias and Sapphira. That was an working of a powerful miracle as a demonstration of the Lord's power in judgment. See, from time to time, God would give that ability. Then Paul mentions prophecy. Not of all the gifts, there may be more debate on this one than all the others. Tongues is close, and we'll get to that. Some people are gifted to prophesy. What is that? There are a number of views about what prophecy is in the New Testament. Is it just preaching? Biblical preaching? Is it the telling of God's word? Is it a spontaneous utterance of revelation from the Lord? Is it an ability to tell the future? Is it revealing a truth beyond what God has already revealed in his word? Something extra? We're going to deal with prophecy more in chapters ahead. Deal with it at length. Basically, I would say that prophecy happened when God gave people a word from him for a specific time and application. God would give a specific word. I think that's essentially how the prophetic gift operates today. Prophetic word is not necessarily telling the future or giving new revelations, but a prophetic word is a generally applied generally it's applied truth from scripture already recorded. That prophetic word may come to somebody spontaneously, or it may come as it's been prepared over study and prayer. But in any case, God empowers the person to speak in such a way that the hearer says, that's from the Lord. So when somebody speaks, and you are sure it is, if it is from God, and you might say, were you reading my mail? That is from the Lord, and it is for me. And I would say, just about always, Whatever is spoken is something that's already found in Scripture, a truth that has been already revealed. Is it possible that God would give more specific prophetic words outside of scriptural truth? Some believe this and practice this, so they would say, God is telling me something that you need to take this job. And that's a prophetic word. I'm not going to sit here and say that can never happen. I am very hesitant, so to speak, to put God in a box, as the phrase is, to limit what God might do. I am going to say I've I've never seen that sort of thing done helpfully. And if someone tells me that God has a message for me, and it's a message that I can't back up in Scripture, I'm going to go ahead and freely dismiss it as a matter of opinion, and place no weight in it whatsoever. Unless you can show me in Scripture how what you're saying is true or relevant for me, I'm going to be very skeptical. The reason that is, is too many people have made messes with this kind of stuff, spiritually manipulated others. God told me. So I don't think we have an obligation to listen to such things that can't be verified from God's Word. I've seen too many people justify their own opinions or even their own desires with a God-told-me trump card. And how can you argue with that? God said it. 
But I think when people do this kind of thing, very often it very, comes very close to taking the Lord's name in vain. Misusing, misappropriating, misrepresenting God for your own personal preferences and desires. So I'm going to tend to place very little word in that kind of prophetic word. I'm going to place far more weight when somebody says, you need to put away greed. I'll say, I can back that up in scripture. That's probably right. I don't want to be too dogmatic about this. You have your own experiences. People come from different backgrounds, especially on these things like prophecy and tongues. We'll try to do our best to unpack it together, not be divided over it. It may be why there's another necessary gift in the church, and that's the ability to distinguish between spirits. In essence, this gift of discernment is the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. The ability to discern what is from the Lord and what is not. 1 John 4 says we are to test the spirits to see which is from God. I think that's what he's getting at. This ability to discern what is from the Lord and what isn't. I think this is an incredibly important gift today. With all the messaging we have coming at us, and we can, again, go on Twitter or social media, and I can hear just arguments and all sorts of things said back and forth, and everybody's saying this is what the Lord said, and the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is scriptural and what isn't, what is actually of the Lord and what isn't, that's an incredibly helpful gift. And if there are people who have that gift in the church, they're really, really useful. Some of us are gullible. I can be one of those people. The ability to discern what is from the Lord and what isn't, a helpful gift. Then lastly, there are the gifts of tongues and interpretation of tongues. Another highly debated gift. By tongues, essentially it means the ability to speak in different languages. That's the most basic definition. We saw this in Acts 2. You remember, Holy Spirit comes down the apostles. They all speak, and people hear in their own languages. It's the gift of tongues. The ability to speak and to hear in languages that you didn't previously know. Communication in an earthly language that was previously unknown. Now the question comes up, and we'll get there in the next chapter. Could this possibly be a heavenly language unknown to humans? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So Paul raises the possibility of speaking in an angelic language, a heavenly language. So there's a lot of debate in the church about, is there such a thing? Paul raises it for a reason. Why does he even hint at a heavenly angelic language if it's not real? On the other hand, you could say that Paul is speaking hyperbolically and saying, even if this were possible, if we do it without love, it's nothing. So, it's possible that Paul is not necessarily saying that those with the gift of tongues can speak in a heavenly language. He may simply be saying that even if some heavenly language were possible, if it were possible to speak it, it would be useless without love. Different ways of looking at it. In some ways it doesn't matter. Someone said, oh, I speak in a heavenly language, I'd say, how do you know it's heavenly and not just a language you haven't heard on earth? It might just be from a tribe you've never heard. I don't know. Maybe it's not heavenly. How do you know? In some ways, it doesn't really matter. The point is, it's not gibberish. It's not made up. It's not stuff that you conjure it off the top of your head just to sound spiritual. It's a real language. Somebody speaks it. And if used, somebody better interpret. And Paul's going to get there. <laughs> He talks about order in the church, but he mentions the interpretation of tongues. So tongues are spoken, a different language is spoken, and somebody there has the ability to discern what is it. They can crack the code. So it's not gibberish. Again, it's not made up. It's a real language that somebody else can decipher. Now, I can't read any computer languages, but some of you have that gift to discern. This is C+. This is, I don't, you have that gift, but there's a code. You can understand it. You can interpret it. That's what the 
interpretation gift is, the ability to say, oh, that's what's being spoken, here's what it means, this real language. We're going to get more into that. I think there's a reason Paul lists tongues last, is because this church in Corinth was all about tongues. And I think he's making a little subtle point. I'm going to put this last on the list. Something for you to think about. The question comes up, are these gifts in use today? And I'm not going to answer it. What I want to do is let the flow of Paul's words and his argument play out over the next few chapters, and then we'll, we'll say something about it then. But people have differences of opinion, often based on their own experience in the church. And we'll say something about it later. So I'm punting that for now. The more, in question, the more important question for us now is, how do we know what our gifts are? What gift has God given you? How do you know? You can take surveys. I don't think surveys are super helpful because surveys tend to only list what are listed here in the New Testament, and I think there are gifts beyond that. So it's limited, a little bit formulaic. And the only way to really know what your gift or gifting is is to use it and to see if God blesses it and brings fruit from it. And that can't be recorded on a survey. A survey will tell you what you think your gift is or what you want your gift to be. So I might write on the survey and fill it out and find out I have the gift of music because that's what interests me, but it is up to you to tell me if I have that gift. I can't get up here and plink around and make an awful noise and say, I have this gift. No, the church affirms that or doesn't affirm that. So the best way to find out what is my gift is to serve, minister in the church, and find out what do people affirm, what seems to bless other people. Have a good friend who will tell you honestly what your gift is and is not. Well, your gift is not hospitality. Well, your gift is hospitality. You make people feel really welcome. It is not dependent on what you want your gift to be, what you wish your gift was but what the Lord gives, what the Lord blesses. Gifts are defined not by what we want, but what actually helps the church and builds up God's people. But everybody has one. How are they given? And that's Paul's last point. Verses 4 through 6 and verse 11, they are given as the triune God wills. This is how gifts are given. They are given as the triune God wills. We don't get to pick and choose our gifts. Instead, they are given to us by God who is one. Verses 4 through 6 and 11. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually, as he wills. Notice what Paul says here. There are a variety of gifts. There's great diversity in the body of Christ. And he says kind of the same thing three times with different words, which I think is really helpful. First, because he defines gifts differently. He uses different words for gifts each time. So the question comes up, what are gifts? Are they natural abilities? Are they talents? Are they super, you know, things that just happen suddenly? I think all of the above, and Paul's point is not really to clearly define what it is, because he's going to talk about ministries, activities, services, gifts, all kind of in the same way. These are all the same thing. There are varieties of gifts, but they all come from the same place. Varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them. And do you see the Trinitarian language in this? Spirit, Lord, God. Spirit, Jesus, and the Father. All these gifts come from the same God who just so happens to be variety United, three in one. Our God himself displays diversity and unity in himself just as the church is to do. So in the Greek context, they may have had 
multiple gods, a pantheon of gods, and they may have gifted their people. And there's Greek mythology of gods giving different gifts to their people for different purposes. But with all those different gods and all the ways they might have gifted their people, there was conflict because all those different gods have different agendas and they warred with one another, never on the same page. It's not the way this is to be in the church because we have one God who's united in himself, three in one. And that one God has a united purpose. God's unified purpose as one God is to bring glory to himself by creating a people to call his own. This has been his purpose throughout creation in creating Adam and sparing Noah and calling out Abraham and delivering Moses and sending Jesus and commissioning the disciples, all of that served the one purpose of calling out and building a people unto himself. This is the one purpose of God in creation. To glorify himself, to show his great power and mercy and grace by calling out and saving a people that he would call his own and giving them life forever in his son Jesus Christ by his spirit. That is the one purpose of God. He has one purpose. So when he gives gifts, they're to be used for that purpose and they're to be united in their use. The purpose of the gift you are given is to build up the church and to glorify God because that's God's purpose. And if God gave them to you, they're to be used for that purpose. So they're not chiefly for our own enjoyment. They are never for competition. They are never for rivalry, never for superiority or jealousy or self-satisfaction or self-aggrandizing or self-congratulation. You are given gifts and abilities to serve the church because that's God's purpose for them. And that's how he empowers them. That's what we ought to be doing with our gifts. I was reflecting with Maggie the other day. We were sitting in our living room looking in our backyard at the treehouse she built. That was her summer project, was building a treehouse. That's her gift, not mine. So when people come over to our house and say, Aaron, did you build that? That'll be the initial assumption. I'll say, no, that was Maggie's work. We're gifted differently. The fact that it's there and standing is a testament that it wasn't my work. We're gifted differently. But we were looking at that and watching the squirrels play on it, and it occurred to us, though this is freshly built this summer and our kids are enjoying it now, sooner or later, that's all who will be playing on it, the squirrels. Because all the things that we build and make one day crumble and fall away. She can build tree houses. I can build video game characters. If you're into RPGs like me, if you know what that is, you might build out your character in a video game and put all your time and energy into giving it the right stats and the right clothing. And You nerds know what I'm talking about. And that's going to crumble also. All these things we can put our time into, many of them good, ultimately will fall away. God's church will not. And you have, day in and day out, the opportunity to build into the Lord's people who will be the glorious bride of Christ forever. To build into the eternal. It's what the gifts are for. We never want to be arrogant in our gifts because it's not us that makes them effective. What does Paul say here? It is God's power to make them work. So you never had an effective gift without the Lord working it and using it. You can do nothing on your own power to make your gift effective. You are like the finest sailboat without any wind. Unless the Lord blows his spirit upon your gift, it will not do any good. So none of us can be arrogant in this. Because the only way our gifts are effective is by God's spirit working. It doesn't matter how gifted you are, how talented you are, how charismatic you are, how well-trained, educated, popular, good-looking, whatever it may be, none of that has anything to do with whether or not your gift is effective 
It is only effective by the power and working and spirit of God. And he does this as he wills, as he chooses, and he gives gifts as he chooses. So you can't do anything to get your gift. And Paul will say later, pursue higher gifts. So I think there's some element of us praying for, but ultimately, we are only given gifts by God's will, as he wills, as he determines. So you should never take pride in the gift that was given to you, because it's a gift. You didn't do anything to get it. Nor should you be jealous of another. Oh, I wish I had that person's gifts. I wish I had that person's abilities. I wish I had... uh, the way God works through them, I wish I had that. Really what you're saying is, I wish God did something different. I wish she was wiser. I know better than God. If I were running things, I would give me this and them that. This is all done as the Lord wills. He gives gifts as he wills. So we stand in thankfulness and gratefulness that God gives some gifts to some, some gifts to others at his pleasure. And we rejoice in that. Never to be arrogant, never to be despairing. Always thankful that God is a God who gifts his church. And we rejoice because we're all on the same team. And when another gift is working, it's for the building up of the whole church and the glory of God. He gives gifts as he wills. So what do we need to know about spiritual gifts? Three answers. They do not define spiritual status. They are given variously to every believer And they are given as the triune God wills. And they are given to all who have accepted the one gift. The best gift of God's grace, Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is that word for free gift in the Greek? Charisma. The free gift of God is eternal life. You may be here wanting to be gifted by God, and that's good. Remember the most important gift, the gift where it all starts, is the gift of life in Christ Jesus who died for us. The ultimate gift that really matters. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, your gifts that you give to us. First and foremost, and in the end, for the one gift that truly matters, the gift of free life, salvation in Jesus Christ given to us by his death and resurrection. And Lord, we thank you that you are building your church, that you are calling out a people, giving us work to do. By your grace, you could have given us nothing to do and it could have all been, quote-unquote, your work, but uh, instead you have chosen to work through us and to involve us and to bring us along as your children and for us to receive the benefit and the joy and the grace of these gifts. So we pray that you would do that. Make us a gifted church for your glory, and in that, make us a humble church, wanting to serve one another by your grace. And help us, Lord, to rejoice in the gifting of one another, never envious, never condescending, always grateful. You're a God who gifts his children. We praise your name. Amen.